0: happy Friday. Welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us. We are excited for the end of the week. Glad that you are with us. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Find us on Twitter at Common Good Talk. Uh, find our podcast wherever it is you find podcasts. You know what? I was listening to a podcast today, Yeah, and the guy goes, uh, yeah, if you could find your podcast wherever you get your podcast, and he goes, subscribe, rate, review, because... Well, that's the only way I stay on here.
1: Wow! <laughs> you know,
0: like, oh, it is important. Oh my goodness! Well, and
1: the other thing that we don't often talk about is if they uh, leave a review on Facebook. That also helps us.
0: Oh, do you know how?
1: How the Russians <laughs> read it? <laughs> exactly. We want to make sure Cambridge Analytica gets all the information about our show. <laughs> no, I don't know how it helps. No, of course not.
0: Yeah, we here's here's our message, to you guys. We don't know how any of this helps. We just know that it helps. So go ahead, subscribe, rate, review. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Go ahead and follow us on Facebook and leave us a review there as well. We're glad to have you joining us on this Friday afternoon. Uh, hope that you're looking forward uh, to a good weekend. Now, you've, uh, there's a guy that's pretty well known in the uh, in the Christian world by the name of John Perkins. You said you've actually met John Perkins,
1: Uh huh. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, he's been pretty involved with Judson University. Oh, we actually right? at Community did a, a really great um, – we had a series called Conversations, and uh, one of the conversations that Dave had was with uh, John Perkins. So – yeah, he's a, he showed up in a couple of different areas of my journey. I was going to say, I
0: was, I was ready for the, for the CCC one. I, I didn't realize the Judson one. But, mm-hmm. So they, they wrote an article about him, uh, and there's several fascinating things. This is it, Religion News. Uh, several fascinating things about John Perkins that I just want to highlight, because I think he's still having an impact at the age of, I believe, 90, at almost 90, which can we just pause and say, like, do you picture yourself still speaking on a stage at 90?
1: Oh, I'm not entirely sure I'm going to make it to 40. <laughs> just <That was> dark.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to be realistic. What if we're still doing the show when you're 40? We're going to throw the biggest party on that day.
1: <laughs> you love I'll parties. I'm nervous the day before. Like, uh oh. <laughs> you think you're nervous? I you think you're nervous. Try and be in my shoes. We're
0: going to have another filling co-host in the other room, just waiting. <laughs> That's dark right there for a well, Friday. For a Friday. If it was a
1: Monday, it would be totally acceptable.
0: This article about John Perkins starts this way. When longtime reconciliation advocate John Perkins took the stage at a conference of multi-ethnic church leaders, they gave him a standing ovation and kept standing as he counseled him. So Mm. think about that. They gave him a standing ovation. And then while he talked, they just stood. Mm. And he said this. At the age of almost 90, Perkins, a civil rights activist, I'm sorry, advocate for the poor, and worker for inclusivity in evangelical churches. Uh, He was at the Mosaics Conference, uh, and he told the people attending in early November that he's, quote, almost finished with his work, but that there is still more ahead for him. Hmm. I hope to get to the age of 90 and be like, hey, there's still more ahead of me. like There's still more to go. But here's his line that he said. He said this, you will find me in the so-called white church. You will find me in the so-called black church. But I'm there to be redemptive, he told them. It's intentional being a reconciler. And that's the phrase I want to stop and talk about for a second. It's intentional being a reconciler. When you hear that phrase, especially that title of being a reconciler, I think we know what that means. But what, how do you think a person that is de- described that way, how would you describe that person?
1: Okay, so I'm a little rusty on my Greek and Hebrew I'm a lot, rusty. <laughs> yeah. Am I a lot? I mean, I don't ever think I knew it. But um, I think part of the root of the word reconciliation is it has like a, a kissing cousin with the idea of like setting a bone back in place to heal. I did not know this. I think. I could okay. be way – I really shouldn't just be doing guesswork on a radio show. That's I like it. That's terrible <laughs> theology. But if I recall, I think it. I think it has some similar imagery to – A bone is broken and part of the work of reconciliation uh, is like re replacing it together so that it can heal. And I think that's cool for me has always been like a helpful sort of word picture and trying to understand what it what it means to actually be a reconciler.
0: Yep. Yep. And so he obviously is very much in the stream of racial reconciliation and trying to bridge that gap in the evangelical world, even at the age of 90. And he's got so much history. Uh, in in the work that he has done, but let's ask this question: You just kind of defined what it is to be a reconciler. Uh, he says it's intentional; you have to be intentional. Do you do you see that as true? That it requires a great amount of intentionality to live out this role of of a reconciler? Because as Christians were to be reconcilers, well,
1: yeah. How how would you accidentally reconcile? That's what I'm asking.
0: 'Cause some people are like, Oh yeah, no, I'm 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 good with everybody on this, but he's like, No, there's an intentional act of reconciliation within our culture. And like he speaks of himself even after all these years of being intentional.
1: Yeah, I, I don't I don't think there is such a thing as an accidental reconciler. I think it's um it's kind of part and parcel with this idea that a peacemaker is not the same thing as a peacekeeper. Uh-huh. you know, so if we're called to be Peacemakers, peacekeepers often are more like, I don't want anyone to be mad. Let's all have a nice Thanksgiving. Why can't we stop shouting? You know, that's not a a bad impulse, but I think what Jesus calls us to is a little more active than that, a little more, um, and there's more, just more physicality to it, to be a peacemaker. So to be a reconciler, you know, you think about, again, let's go back to the broken bone analogy. Mm -hmm. You you don't want to just start flinging, you know, casting material towards people and hope that it happens to land on a broken bone. It requires all sorts of focus and intentionality. And maybe I'm drawing this illustration out too far, but no, I think it's it good. also requires, I think, mutuality. It requires intention of two people. A doctor that really wants to like set and cast a bone also needs a patient that's willing. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, you, can't, you can't just run around like tackling people and then like, forcing them into a splint. So I think the act of reconciliation is something that requires that one, maybe you acknowledge that something actually is broken, Mm. you know? So this sort of like happy-go-lucky, I'm fine with everybody, everyone's fine with me. Um, That's, I mean, certainly a desired state of being for a lot of people, Yeah. but I think it misses the greater reality that, okay, if there's something broken here, I need to first have eyes to see it. I need to call it what it is because I can't heal what I don't. See, I mean,
0: that's good. They asked him the question in this interview You're a veteran in the realm of race relations in church and society. What concerns you most about the current state of those uh, relations? And he said, uh, This is really interesting. He says, I don't think we're developing authentic friendship, our discipleship is not going there. I think our racial reconciliation continues to antagonize each other. What an interesting point! He's saying that, that there's something still broken about even making it. Uh, be able to happen. And then he goes on to say, hey, you're speaking to people at this conference, a multi-ethnic church conference filled with people from generations that follow yours. What advice do you have for clergy uh, seeking to create or maintain churches that are both inclusive of a variety of ethnic and racial groups? And he says, we're trying to be a prototype. We're trying to find the model that can reflect that dignity within humanity, but we don't quite have it. Yet, and I I would close this segment by asking you this question. He he just says we don't we're not there yet. Yeah. Do you sense that the church is on the right path? Do you sense in the churches that you're around or even the greater church culture? Uh, do you think the next generation or the generation that we're going to see great improvement in this area, or are you a little more skeptical?
1: No, I'm I'm hopeful. I, again, that's a huge that's a huge brush to be painting with. You mm-hmm. know, to say the church is heading in the right direction. is Good point. Kind of an impossible statement to to kind of completely make. But I think, um, you know, even like with new thing, I've been talking earlier this week about these catalyst communities of black and white, big and small churches kind of coming together. I think that's a big part of it. I'm seeing more and more people that are willing to kind of link arms. I, in fact, I think it was actually from the conversation that he had with, with Dave Ferguson a couple years ago, he made a statement that I always thought was really profound. He said, we don't give people dignity. We affirm it. Mm. So it's not a like, Oh, let me come down here and I'm going to give you, Dignity so that we can be on level ground. No, no, the the dignity is already there. It starts first by the church being willing to affirm in people that look, talk, act and think differently than we do. You know, and I think that is a a really important aspect of reconciliation and one that I do think hopefully we are getting better at. Good. In his
0: new book, he calls me friend. I'll close with this. He says that friendship is the key to help people overcome what he calls the sin sickness of ethnic hatred and prejudice. That the friendship is what is important. So I'd encourage you to go get that book. It's called He Calls Me Friend uh, by a titan of the faith, uh, John Perkins. Well, coming up next, tackling an article out of the Christianity Today that says knowing God's love is impossible. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're grateful to have you joining us on this Friday afternoon. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Twitter, at Common Good Talk Podcast. Wherever it is you get your podcasts. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review Grateful uh, for those of you who do this, I don't know. why I ask you this question every week, but uh, weekend plans, weekend plans. Why do you ask me that every week? Anything fun? Where are you preaching this week?
1: No, let's get let's get behind the question. What what is really? I love going the on weekend, there? so I'm I'm always hopeful. You got something big going on. <laughs> I'm going to a football
0: game at my alma mater on oh, Saturday nice. with my son. Playoffs, it's gonna be fun. Nice. Uh, my wife
1: has like. Two or three markets. So
0: I am – Can you explain this, Mark? you said it a couple – I know what she's doing, but yeah. like is she – what is she selling, selling for? Is this, are we allowed to talk advertising?
1: <laughs> for, my, for my wife, absolutely. <laughs> there yeah. you go. She uh, She's making these handcrafted earrings. She's also making some bags and T-shirts now as well. Uh, and 10% of all the proceeds go to support uh, women in her mother's homeless ministry. Wow. So – It's awesome because – if I could just brag a little bit. Do it. We did a whole hour with her while you were gone. But her – it's really cool because it's not just like raising random dollars to send to a random ministry. Mm -hmm. These are actual women that we get to like know and do life with because they're a part of her mother's ministry. Wow. So, one, the craftsmanship is insane. Like she's just a really talented artist. Two, it's going to support this like really great cause that has all sorts of meaning. You know, if you remember – her mom started the ministry yep, yep. after she lost her son. So it's like a deeply kind of family type uh, yeah. passion. And uh, there's just a lot of really cool people in our city and surrounding areas that are hosting markets and different events. And wow. we're partnering with uh, my friend Shannon. Opened a market or opened a, a store in Aurora called Wickwood House. So she's going to start carrying some of uh, my wife's earrings. That's really and, cool. Uh, so it's. Yeah, it's been Does your really neat. wife herself make all of the stuff, all of them by hand. Yep. Wow. Yep. That's crazy. Yep. She's like making, and sanding, and cooking them in our oven and piecing them all together. It's all like from her brain. This is, I find this fascinating. I don't
0: know if other people do. So one pair of earrings takes how long? Oh, for gosh. your wife to make.
1: I don't. I don't know how she doesn't like in batches, okay. but there's a lot of okay. like. The sw- See, I clearly don't have the terminology. A lot of like s- swirly colors and some of them have glitter on them and some of them have like leather guys straps. guys talking about this. Like, I, I literally – I look at it and I go, I don't know how you made this color combination happen. Like it doesn't That's wild. compute for me at all. So I know that it takes a long time. I know that much. It's, but, and she's really, really meticulous about That's it. That's awesome. Well, now that we've given it this much time, what's the website again? Oh, Commonmissionwomen.com. And you can hear stories and you can go to the shop and a bunch of other stuff. Well, there you go. I'm glad we got that plug out there. Oh, highly recommend you check it out. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, Christianity
0: Today, an article came out uh, entitled this, Knowing God's Love is Impossible. So when I saw this, I was like, oh, this is interesting. So let me read some of it to you. Uh, the author writes, knowing God is maybe the most central thing in the Christian life. Also, possibly the hardest. The other day I was talking to a student, he writes, relatively new to a life of discipleship who confided just how frustrating it is that he's taking so much time to grow. He lamented how much he struggles to trust God when others seem to do so with ease. As I struggled to think of how to encourage him, I remembered one of the most curious prayer requests in all of Scripture found in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which I had just been working through. Towards the end of chapter 3, Paul asks... Out of his glorious riches, may God strengthen you with power through his spirit uh, in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all God's holy people to grasp how wide, how long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love and surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. And he writes, we're tempted to glance over this. Uh, and think okay great paul prays that they understand god's love typical paul prayer what's the big deal but he says i was stopped short though when i realized paul is asking that they be strengthened that they have quote power to be able to know this love that surpasses all knowledge let me pause there for a sec uh is this something you hear from others or maybe feel from yourself that just kind of grasping god's love is a uh, he calls it impossible, at least difficult, if not um, uh, if not an impossible task.
1: I don't think it's uh, grasping that I hear mm-hmm. most often. I think it's believing. Mm. Like I, I shared with our staff even on Wednesday, I said I think a lot of us understand that God loves us, but we don't necessarily think that He likes us. I think wow. I think that, that out a little bit. I really think that plagues particularly church workers more than anything. like we mm-hmm. get the we understand Jesus on the cross, but we don't necessarily get jesus as or maybe even god as loving father like i think that like we sometimes feel like unwanted guests in god's house party or Uh, that he's really annoyed that we still haven't figured this thing out or we're still struggling in this area of sin or whatever like the love the big cosmic i get to go to heaven love we like yeah yeah, i get that but i think at our base level a lot of us just aren't convinced that he likes us very much. Mm. Think about what would the results of that be, and how we view God. I mean, that's oh yeah, that's constant, constant, really constant performance. Yeah, you always have to be earning some kind of favor or affection from God. He's like a he's like a uh, you know disenfranchised father that mm. you know you're always having to try to like please or perform, and you never really know where you stand, and that yeah. can lead to all sorts of either burnout or lethargy. I think yeah. if you're always yeah. sort of obsessed with. How do I, how, I mean, think back to junior high when you really obsessively wanted someone to like you. Mm-hmm. What did you do? It was like an, an endless treadmill of performance. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that maybe on the surface looked normal, but like in your heart, you knew, I'm just, I just want this person to like me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. How do we start to, how do we start to break that down in people and in and ourselves? I, I, I'm kind of distancing myself as if it's not a struggle. <laughs> how do we get, begin to even grow away from that? Because that's such a. Uh, not a biblical view of God, but as you describe it, I'm like, yep, certainly been there.
1: Yeah. Certainly that's a struggle. There are a couple of suggestions I would maybe give that maybe don't seem all that groundbreaking, but one reading about God's delight of us, like really going after passages where that's crystal clear too. This is kind of a nerdy answer, but I think the more that we really understand justification by grace. Yeah. um, So like justification, I don't know that we've ever really talked about this is different than forgiveness because a forgiven person can still go and sin and be guilty again. It's yeah. more than being pardoned, right? Because a pardoned criminal still has a record. Justification is this, this as far as the East is from the West, like mm. the choosing to no longer even remember your sins and your shortcomings. I think we don't really believe that at the yeah. core level, a lot yeah. of us. And we still think that it's like, yeah, it's Jesus plus – Mm. I need to be a really great pastor, or I need to like really be nailing it at home all the time. Yeah. These are all good things, obviously, but I think when we really, really understand how much of that is just simply received and not achieved, I don't that's know. True. That's a that's a pretty big paradigm shift.
0: That's really good. and hey, Man, it is hard. It's not even where I thought we were going to go with this, but that's really hard and, and important to think about. Uh, the author here, I think Derek Rickshaw, Rickshaw says, uh, I just butchered his name, but you can look it up. He <laughs> said, I hope my student gets encouragement from Paul's Prayer and knees. He says, first, it clarifies that inevitably strengthening takes time. Being rooted and established in love requires time spent experiencing the love of Christ when you are most unlovable hmm. and seeing the love of Christ extend towards others, uh, those it would never occur to you to love. And he says, further, coming to know God's love is not something we're meant to do alone. Hmm. That Paul teaches, uh, Paul teaches us that we come to know God, quote, together with all of God's holy people. Coming to know the immeasurable love of God is a group project uh, in the church, not a competition we engage in all by our lonesome. And he says, finally, that this is a prayer to God is the big tip off. Paul is asking for something that ultimately God can bestow by his grace as Mm. a gift. Mm. He doesn't preach a gospel via salvation by grace, only to slip back into making knowing God a matter of intelligence, native smarts, efforts, or achieve goodness. I really like that. Pray for it. Like That's not the end all answer always, but... Yeah. Sometimes it is it is helpful to go, okay, Paul prayed for something like this. Maybe yeah. we should as well.
1: Well, and, and to know and to rest in the fact that you are far, far more than yes. your best or worst thing. Yes. I think we tend to go to both those extremes, yeah. that I am as good as my accomplishments or I am the sum of the worst things I've done. And yep. I think just to remember that God's delight in you is not based on your performance for him. Mm-hmm. And to – I think what this author is saying is to pray and to remember that even the knowledge of that is a gift. Yes. So that – it makes sense, I think, to start and end with prayer and to remind each other of the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you can find that
0: at Christian Today. We'll put it on our Facebook page if it's not already there quite yet. Well, coming up next here on The Common Good, uh, we're going to talk about, we're going to take a chance. We're going to talk about something that just might be too sad, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Coming up next here on The that's going to cause people to stay by the radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, geez, Louise. Coming up next on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Friday afternoon. Hope you got big plans for the weekend. Uh, maybe your plans are listening to an old podcast of ours. If so, you can find our podcast mm. wherever it is you get your podcast. Go ahead and subscribe, rate, review. Well, I teased before the break that this story could go sideways on us just being really sad. But I think it. there was so much about it as I was reading it and watching the video Uh, Tim Tebow, I'm sure the vast majority of us know who Tim Tebow is. So former Heisman Trophy winner, NFL player, uh, speaker, uh, all sorts of stuff. Avid kneeler. Avid kneeler, Mm -hmm. yes. Kind of my white whale to get on the show. Remember you and I were naming them a year
1: ago? Do people like to be called whales? The white whale. It's, uh, It's literary. It's literary. Yeah, there are a lot of things that are literary that could still be insulting. If I knew that I
0: was your white whale to meet, I'd be like, yeah, cool. I like that. I'm good with it. (laughs) Well, I know that you would
1: like that.
0: Uh, uh, Anyway, Tim Tebow, this this was at a couple different places, but I'm looking at it on the website for the Today Show. And it says, uh, it's from Instagram, that Tim Tebow posts a heartbreaking video saying goodbye to his dog, Bronco. He called it, quote, one of the toughest goodbyes he's ever had to say. So he's had this dog for uh, 10 years or 11 years. Uh, and the dog, like happens, you know, if you've ever had a dog, had to be put down because uh, uh, the dog was sick. Uh, and t- Tebow talked about his love of the dog before on several occasions referred to Bronco as his son in at least one, t- one tweet. And uh, it's a heartbreaking video. <laughs> mm. and, and that's why I don't want to just zoom in on the video here. But he used an opportunity of kind of his heartbreak to kind of post some stuff that I think a lot of us uh, resonate with, and um, I want to get at this question. I'll tell my story, but I want to get at this question as to why uh, are we so drawn to the to to our pets? Okay, it's kind of a strange question, but uh, my wife and I we've had dogs through the years, and we had to put one down like two years ago. Hmm. Um, and I loved this dog to death, and when it came time, when she was clearly sick, and the vet was like, "There's nothing we can do." Um. I remember we went to the vet and we were both a basket case. Really? And I had to leave. I was like, I can't be here. I can't stay. And she's mm. like, she had to stay for the whole thing. And I was like, okay. And, uh, I remember being like, this is, this is really,
1: uh, difficult. You ever had to go through anything like that? Well, it's funny because, um, you know, I always had cats growing up and cats just sort of ride off into the sunset. They do. Like it's very it, different. You just sort of look around, and you're like, whatever happened to Peanut? Yeah, we had two Mm. cats growing up and it was that way. I think he rode out west. I think he (laughs) was picturing like with a cowboy hat and a tumbleweed rolling pad. Like you don't have to – so I do – I mean uh, admittedly and a little embarrassingly, I I remember in high school hearing friends talk about having to put down a dog and how heartbreaking it was. And I remember in my head thinking, is it really that big of a deal? Like being pretty internally – unsympathetic. Yep. And then, uh, like my first or second year of college, we had to, we had to put down our dog. And, uh, I remember like legitimately calling up friends from high school, apologizing oh, no for not having been more sympathetic or more aware, no. like just how difficult that was. That was really hard on our family too. Yeah. It's just so
0: you're, you're reminded of how much you, you love these pets. And so, uh, we now have another dog just like our last one. And I love this dog to death. And, mm. Uh, here's what I want to tackle because it even feels maybe, maybe it's not more, maybe you just notice it on things like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, but it feels like people are even more drawn and like more connected mm. with their dogs. Uh, particularly. And I guess I would love to ask this question. Why do you think, what is it about dogs that we love so much that almost, uh, people treat them as their babies or they, which uh, is a grinds my gears of yours, isn't it? it? When they put them in the stroller, that was a <laughs> grinds my ge- good point. That was a grinds my gears. Uh, What is it do you think – because then I want to spin it and go, uh, what is it about the human existence? What is it that all of us as humans or most of us are searching for that maybe pets, specifically dogs, uh, no pun intended, seem to scratch that itch like they seem to get there for us?
1: Yeah, and this obviously isn't every dog, but I think that there is something about sort of this unconditional loyalty and affection and uh, to even a laughable degree, sometimes Mm -hmm. dogs, it doesn't matter – You've even mentioned on the show, like I sometimes have. I think my dog is more excited I'm home than anyone in my family. Yep. Like, yep. Not sometimes. <laughs> most of <most laughs> the time. Yes. All the time. <laughs> Who knows? So, yeah, there's something about like our need to, and I don't know if this is true for everybody. I just, oh, shoot, I'm going to forget. The actual name of the book. There's a new Harrison Ford movie coming out based on a novel. Harrison Ford still making movies? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Gotta All right. I, you need to talk again so I can Google this because it's about okay. the journey of this uh, this old man and his dog. What is the book? Gosh. i Google it while I'll share my story. I love – we've got a little uh, uh,
0: Pishan Shih Tzu uh, mix. Uh, her name is Pippa. And the thing that I love about this dog is that this dog, like you just said – It is like the greatest part of her day when we walk in the door Hmm. and to be greeted that way is unreal. And also, wherever you sit, she will find you and she will sit on your lap and lay on her back and go scratch my belly. Hmm. And there have been so many times. And I used to feel like this, especially when our kids were little. where like, whether you had a good day or a bad day, this person was there or this dog was there to just uh, love you unconditionally. Whether you preached a great sermon or Mm -hmm. You know, you're making budget at your office or your whatever else. I think that starts to get at why we love dogs so much. Like my dog and I, we don't ever get in arguments. <laughs> she annoys me sometimes, but she never right. looks up at me and like,
1: I'm mad at you. You now, probably annoy her sometimes. Cats do that. Yo, know, cats but- constantly. You're always putting a cat out. <laughs> How dare you? All right. Did you find it? I did. Yeah. So the, uh, it's called uh, The Call of the Wild. I don't know if you ever read the book. The book? Yeah. I did read the book, yeah. By uh, Jack London, right? I think. Oh, good call. Is that right? I believe you're right. Okay, so go watch the trailer, The Call of the Wild, Harrison Ford. Like the first 10 seconds or so, I was like, oh, this looks a little hokey. And then by 30 seconds in, I'm just weeping on the couch. Like it is there. at the trailer. But kind of to your point, I'm also an avid lover of trailers. We've discussed this before, haven't we? You've been saying avid lover of dogs. You Not want trailers. trailers. I, I, like it. Love I love trailers. It. No, but you'll watch, I mean, it's amazing because it, even just in the short, you know, two minute window, yep. it kind of touches on some of what you're getting at. There's an innate, oh yes, unconditional loyalty, companionship in a really lonely, isolated world. This dog gets me or this thing, yep. you know, and of course we know it like a cognitive level dog doesn't actually get you, right? Just just, once, its belly rubbed. Some comedian I heard talking, he's like, oh, my dog loves me. And he's like, "Yeah, your dog would also love like a bag of sticks with your shirt on it. So, (laughs) (laughs) and that's, he's partially right there. But there's something about just like you're saying, just the simplistic, we don't have arguments. We don't have discussions. We're just together. together. I think it's human. Let's let's make this a lot deeper and ask this
0: question. Uh, How can we without being dogs how can we as the church kind of provide that or what what is if people are looking for those kinds of things uh, why are they not finding it you know in friendships all the time and and is there something that we as Christians can be doing uh, even learning a little bit about that of in showing unconditional love or support or whatever else it might
1: be uh, I don't know that that will ever be achievable between two humans just because mm. we're both A much more complex system of neurons and emotions and all of that. But I do think, you know, we've talked before about how we respond in suffering or grief, you know, and we've all seen some video somewhere of a dog comforting a toddler that's, you know, having a rough day. I saw one today. And we all, yeah, we (laughs) all look at that and go, oh my gosh, which is funny because that clearly resonates with us. And yet when a close friend of ours is struggling we often think the thing this person needs most right now is a list of solutions. Good point. You're like, I think sometimes yeah. your friend just needs you to just be with them, to just give them a long yeah. hug and to binge watch The Office with them. You know what I mean? There's something mm-hmm. about just the, the lack of words that animals provide just the physical presence of presence. someone else, something else. I do And I think there's probably a lot to be learned there in terms of how we – deal with other people's you know grief and sorrow. Maybe the best friend in Job's book was a dog. Mm. The book of Job. That's the oh. Twitter account I would follow. Sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, it's a heartbreaking story, but it does raise as to why we just love these dogs. And, and I know some of you out there probably feel the same way. And uh, I think you make some good points about how we can love on each other. Uh, in, in some of the same ways. So coming up next, Gospel Coalition writes about a book of the Bible being underrated. And I had some thoughts. What do we think are the underrated books of the Bible? Coming up next on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian From. Glad to have you joining us today. Today, uh, as pastors, we've shared this oftentimes. Ian is uh, one of the pastors at Community Christian Church, uh, the yellow box here in Naperville. I am uh, a pastor at Four Corners Community Church in Darien. And uh, as pastors, you know, we are dealing with the Bible a lot, preaching out of the Bible, helping people understand it, whatever else uh, it might be. And uh, with that in mind, I, th- I thought this was an interesting article. Uh, other people might not think so, but the Gospel <laughs> Coalition, at thegospelcoalition.org, uh, the the article's literally titled, Second Chronicles is an Underrated Book of the Bible. Oh. And like, okay, the, you, you got me, you got me. <laughs> and it goes on to say, uh, the, but oh, I don't want to talk about that article as much as I want to talk about the premise, that there are books of the Bible that a lot of us probably are very familiar with, yeah. and there are books of the Bible that we probably kind of skip over. So what are the ones we're familiar with, right? The Gospels or... Acts and, and what Romans. are the Gospels, Brian? Uh, they are um, – uh, no, I'm just kidding. Matthew, Mark, <laughs> Luke, and John. And uh, there's even some Old Testament books that we're probably more familiar with than others. And so I'm curious – let's play this game. What is uh, Ian's list or just one or two oh of what you would consider uh, kind of off-the-beaten-path off the, off the beaten path books of the Bible that you really enjoy and think people should uh, – uh, probably being more, no, no more, and maybe why? Why do you think that? This is, this feels Good. like a trick question. It's not at all. It's not at all. Do you want me to go first since I've been thinking yeah, about you it? you go first and let me think about it a little I bit. have always loved the really short New Testament book of Philemon. Holy cow, that's what I was going to say. Were you really? Yeah. I have preached through To say I've preached through it, it's one chapter. So right. it's a right. one week, or we did a two weeker uh, on it. That's I lo- <laughs> I love the book of Philemon. Uh, because it is it is very personal in nature right you've got Onesimus and you've got Paul and uh, you've got this uh, it's such a beautiful picture of forgiveness and grace um, and then you've got the whole deal where where the slave you don't know if he's been let free but but then some church history says that, that they think that the bishop of Ephesus ended up being named Onesimus. Maybe it's him. Hmm. Like, we often skip it over because it's literally in your Bible, like three quarters of a page. Like, it's right. not, there's not even a back to it. Um, but it is a wonderful picture. Uh, it's less teaching and more story where you can insert yourself in it and be like, oh, this is what grace, like costly grace, looks like. Yeah. Uh, oh, what Paul is asking of Philemon is like, that's a really big deal. And Onesimus is probably standing there as the returned slave who, who Philemon can have killed. And uh, yeah, I think it, every time I read that, uh, I'm just like, man, this is like, this is what Jesus has done for us. Like, this is a picture of grace. And uh, yeah, if you haven't read Philemon in a while, uh, I would encourage you to do so. Underrated book of the Bible, the book of the little book of Philemon.
1: You? That's actually what I was going to say. Were you really? Uh Maybe pick another one or tell me why Philemon. Uh, I think with Philemon, it's like a really beautiful example of the gospel in action. You know, when you're dealing with sort of this slavery freedom motif as well, which is so central to what so much of what Paul writes in the New Testament elsewhere. And I think it's about this really bizarre, at least bizarre to our context, to our eyes. Like I would love to, you should dig up the audio. I'd love to hear how you preach to do this. Like what that what that was like mm. in a modern context, did you get a lot of pushback from that? Like how, how are we to reconcile S- the slavery part? Yeah. So I punted, to be honest with you, like okay. I said at
0: the very beginning of the message, I understand what this raises about slavery, but that's not what I'm, what, that's not the point of what I'm trying to get at here. Okay. So yeah, I did a good pastor punt on that one. A pastor did
1: you, punt. Did you deal with it? I've never preached it.
0: Oh really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it honestly is a book about, you know, with sla- a slave owner and a return right. slave. And uh, so it does raise that up. I The time that I preached the two weeks of it, I just said, we're not even going to wrestle with that. And I'm sure people were like, ah, you just kind of got scared. <laughs> Are you guessing that? Or uh, no, people I did not hear that, that, but yet. I'm sure I would have heard that. <laughs> what about let's pick Old Testament books? What would be an Old Testament book that you would tell somebody, hey, you probably haven't uh, spent much time in this one. Uh, I'm trying to think this off the top of my head, too. Uh, love the book of Nehemiah. Mm. <laughs> I preached through the book of Nehemiah. A lot of this, maybe it's not this way for you, but for me, it's uh, not only ones that I've read and loved, but ones that I've preached through. Hmm. Like, oh, I didn't expect that. Uh, but uh, years ago, when we first started the church, I preached through the book of Nehemiah, and it's also very narrative-driven and uh yeah, it would make for a great movie. I really enjoyed it. And it was weird because when we preached through it, there's so much history to it. And I, I should do this again because it's been like literally eight years since I preached through Nehemiah and I'm I'm forgetting some of the history of it. But uh, I do remember people, you know, when you're preaching like a series or a message and you could just tell people are like excited to hear it yeah. versus not excited to hear it. You probably don't get the not excited to hear it. Oh, I, I get, get that on occasion. Yeah. But the whole book of Nehemiah, I remember having the sense of, like, people want to hear what's next in the story. Oh, they, really? They're ready. They're ready. And I remember often people going, because uh, we had a lot of people who were very young in their faith who had never really, they weren't familiar with a book like Nehemiah. And I can remember the feedback being like, I've never read this book. I've never heard this before. Hmm. Going, okay, all right, we're doing something here. And being able to tie Nehemiah into the story, but then also being able to point to the New Testament and to Jesus. Uh, I really enjoyed preaching uh, through the book of Nehemiah. You've got to have an Old Testament one, no? Underrated Uh, book. Underrated. I I could go New Testament too if you
1: want. No, I'll I'll play this game. Um, (laughs) I remember a few summers ago, a few summers ago, this was like seven summers ago. That's Um, a few. When we're older now, that's a few. That's right. We did uh, 12 Weeks in the Prophets. Nice. Uh, maybe it's twelve weeks. The twelve minor prophets. Maybe that's what we did. Hosea. I really loved. Uh, that's a crazy story. It's a crazy story, and it's such a unique perspective, particularly in the prophetic tradition, to be something that the prophet himself is experiencing and living through. And yes. It's this like first person, and it's such a. If you've never read through Hosea, like I think find some other people to read it with would really be yeah, helpful. So hard. It's it really is difficult, but it the the motif and the and the themes underneath it. And the way that it is so like visceral and guttural and and messy, and it doesn't wrap up like a nice Hallmark movie, but communicates some really deep, profound truths about God and his pursuit of his people. And I don't know. I remember really preparing to teach that for the first time, thinking, I wish I would have read this decades ago. Like it just, and maybe it was just the spot in my life, but it was certainly one of those, like I can't think of the last time I heard someone preach on Hosea. And it just was a, a really powerful moment for me it's funny
0: you bring that up uh dave schubert who who's moved to tennessee but he was uh the guy started the church with the other pastor and we don't speak of him anymore (laughs) the name that shall not be spoken (laughs) how dare he leave me uh he preached i was a year or two ago through the book of like one or two weeks in hosea and i just happened it was one of those where you know oftentimes when you're the main preacher when you don't when the other guy only preaches when you're not there right Mm. but Mm. but i was there and just listening and just eating it up. And I remember having really? the exact same thought you did, going, I've never really spent much time in Hosea. Like yeah, I've never right. really uh done this. Uh so maybe somebody's out there here, finish this off with this question. Uh somebody's out there going, yeah, I really want to read the book of Hosea, but I'm intimidated. I don't even know how to start. Like it's a, you already said, read it with other people or maybe Philemon or something. Yeah. What are some resources you'd encourage somebody? Is it commentaries? Is it just community? Is it go find a good book or just tear into it?
1: I always point people to the Bible project. You know, they have these really brilliant summaries of every book of the Bible. I also encourage people to read. I mean, these aren't technically um, translations, but more paraphrases. So a lot of these more challenging books and chapters, you know, read it, you know, in the message Mm, or the voice. If you go to BibleGateway.com, you can get, you know, literally (laughs) dozens of different translations and paraphrases. And that, for me, I'll often read them in various different um, formats just to kind of help, like, what? okay, I can't understand what's going on here. Reading it in a different different way is, at least for me, helpful. And that's not always the most scholarly approach necessarily. And Eugene Peterson would agree about the message was not meant to be a translation. But sometimes reading through those, like, whole narrative arcs, through a different uh, a different reading other than like the King's English. Can yeah. be
0: the King's English. That can be, that can be helpful. <laughs> Even that's how we will speak in heaven one day. Obviously.
1: Uh, we would love
0: to hear from you. What are some underrated books of the Bible that you enjoy going to that when you've read them, uh, you've really enjoyed? Well, coming up next, we are going to go into your lane. We're going to talk about something that makes your brain eat itself and another article that says this is vital for your brain's health. We're going to talk about both of those coming up next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. Joined as always. Often. Often. Usually. Most of the time. Most days. Can I? You and I have talked about this many times, but I had another talk with somebody just recently. Yeah. Uh, who listens to our show. I was very happy about that. Of course you were. And I was describing the fact that you and I, like, we get along really well, but don't hang out at all. At all. Have never, like, the next time will be the first time, and... We've been doing this ten, eleven months, our wives we never met our wives, blah, blah, blah. And this person was really surprised by that. Oh. Like I think we sound like we're flat fi- like we're
1: friends. <laughs> <laughs> that just makes us good fakers, I guess? Or I, guess. I said we're more friendly. We're <laughs> 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 more friendly. <laughs> I mean, not that I don't think we wouldn't get along. We would. Just hanging out. We, it would be wonderful. Sharing a milkshake. <laughs> sharing a Going go roller skating together. <laughs> One milkshake, two straws. Obviously. <laughs> Going down a water nope. slide. Okay, How did this turn into a 1950s
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Why. I'm just
1: trying to dream of warmer <laughs> times. roller skating <laughs> with a milkshake. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't bring the milkshake on. The, they would never allow it on the rink. That's of course not. Just a hazard. It, when is the last time you roller skated? Oh, four days ago, <laughs> got my knee-high socks on, playing some Mutang R- roller skating. That was the thing. Like in college,
0: we would do like late-night skates. They were called and would in be like, college. Yes, the Wheaton would like rent out like at like midnight. You'd rent out. This is this is what we did at Wheaton, and they were called late-night skates. And it might be like seventies night, so everyone would kind of dress up. And it was like this is going to sound weird to say,
1: it's <laughs> a, uh, a ton of fun. I do remember though, I. I think i might have even shared this before this is not at all we were supposed to talk about we'll get there. um I, we did a couple skate no it was a it was an event it was like fourth or fifth grade there's a girl i had a crush on Cut okay. that i thought also liked me mm. and i like went to go get some snacks and came back and she was couple skating with somebody else and i like skated to the bathroom and uh, <laughs> they're playing oh gosh Brian Adams, don't tell me it's not worth crying for. No, and I seriously was like out of a movie, and I was like (laughs) out of Robin Hood. Right? Is the Robin Hood song? Is that from Robin Hood? Yes. Uh, Anyway, with with Kevin Costner.
0: uh, Yeah. No. (laughs) Yeah, you can't tell me it's not worth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That song was in Robin Hood. It's You remember the old MTV video? MTV video. It was only Robin Hood stuff. That was like the song from that movie. But go ahead. So you were? You don't believe me? I'm I will be willing to bet a large sum of money that wow. that was from Robin Hood. That's a large sum of pastor money. Not.
1: <laughs> right, I assume that. So much. it's $11. <laughs> oh, the songs everything I do. Sorry, I didn't even get the Yeah. I could sing I, it right now for you if you want, but uh yeah, would you please? No, it's going to make you cry because of fourth fifth grade
0: couple skate here. Well, that's a good point. I appreciate yeah. that. Oh, so you did you did it cause you to cry
1: in the bathroom there? I don't want to talk about this anymore. I actually do. This is good. Me crying <laughs> You're sick, Brian. Actually, the funny thing is, I
0: think the first high school dance I went to, that was like the big song. Oh, really? I believe so. That's funny. Oh, yeah, because yeah, you're that that a few older than I would yeah, fit. That's right. Oh awkward me in like freshman or sophomore year. That was not a good. Was, you were awkward? Yeah, that was no good. I can't even no picture good. it. <laughs> Just look over here. <laughs> <laughs> Try not to. Uh, so we can tell when the articles are ones that you have found. This one's at BigThink.com. BigThink.com. <laughs>
1: Don't patronize me.
0: When I saw the title, I was like, I have to read that one. The title is this. A Lack of Sleep Makes Your Brain Eat Itself, New Research Suggests. A new study suggests chronic sleep deprivation causes overactivity in the brain's self-cleaning mechanism. Did you even know the brain had a self-cleaning mechanism?
1: Oh, of course I did, Brian. I read
0: BigThink.com. Leading to the destruction of healthy cells. So let me just read the first paragraph, see if we can follow any of this. (laughs) Weird, shape-shifting glial cells are your brain's caretakers. They're the first responders in the event of a head injury and having colonized every nook and cranny of the place while you were still in the womb. They're your cranial custodians. Hmm. This sounds like a Disney movie. Uh, (laughs) These tentacled helpers clear out the junk and are vital to keeping your brain smoothly humming along. But now a new study has discovered something startling about them. They eat healthy brain cells in mice who don't get enough sleep and maybe in us. As well,
1: mm. as the
0: co-host here who is not getting enough sleep in his life, <laughs> how does that make you feel?
1: Sleepy. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this? Well, I don't know. It says the study by Michelle Bellisi, Luisa De Vivo, <laughs> Mattia Cini, and Chiara Cirelli should never have ventured into those names <laughs> no, at all. You shouldn't have at all. Looked at two kinds of glial cells in mice. Astrocytes, which we all know are the most famous of the glial whatever, <laughs> are like gardeners for your neural synapses, pruning Crazy. away bits you don't use to continue to keep you uh, keep your wiring tidy and efficient. And microglial cells are the garbage collectors constantly on the lookout for used up cells and other stuff that could get in the way. And there were three groups of mice in the study. We don't have to get into the specifics of the mice. Mm-hmm. But I have heard other sentiments uh, similar to this, especially relating to the lack of sleep, but I've never heard it described quite this way. And to be honest, I, I think that's I mean, an interesting thought. I don't know that it's going to motivate me to actually sleep more. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a good point. Now, you brought up another study here at UpliftConnect.com that also speaks of our brain. So I thought these would be interesting uh, alongside one another. And it says this, the proof that noise hurts and silence heals. The value of silence is felt, it says, by everyone at some point in their life. Silence is comforting, nourishing, and cozy. It opens us up to inspiration and nurtures the mind, body, and soul. Meanwhile, the madness of the noisy world is drowning out our creativity, our inner connection, uh, and hampering our resilience. Science is now showing that uh, science is now showing that silence may be just what we need to regenerate our exhausted brains and bodies. Listen to this. Studies show that noise has a powerful physical effect on our brains, causing elevated levels of stress hormones. Sound travels to the brain as electrical signals via the ear. Even when we're sleeping, these sound waves cause the body to react and activate the uh, amygdala, the part of the brain associated with memory and emotion. Amygdala. Okay. Good enough. (laughs) Should we we rewind the tape when you tried to do those names a minute ago? (laughs) I'm I'm fine with that. Leading to the release of stress hormones. So living in a consistently noisy environment will cause you to experience high levels of these uh, harmful hormones. Do you find that uh, confirming to what you've already believed or surprising?
1: Uh, No, I don't think it's surprising. I think... uh... We've been reading a lot lately, especially on the show, about the the importance of silence. I think it's interesting, too. And you had mentioned earlier, maybe this was a few months ago now, that words like meditation had always sort of spooked you in the Christian faith. But, you know, if you you jump over some of the Augustinian philosophy and theology, the church has actually had a long history of practicing silence and solitude and meditation. And uh, I just always find it fascinating when modern science – confirms what ancient mystics were already doing and sort of proposing as helpful, beneficial, and uh, I think sacredly significant things to do. It is always interesting though when, like, I've listened to people talk about even, um, like, did you know there's such a thing as a sound ecologist? There are people that literally will study the levels of noise or silence in a certain area and silence, you know, can be really, really um, unsettling too. You know Absolutely. they have like I don't know if you ever been like in a dead room before where there's you know particularly uh, like rooms that are engineered to not have any re- reverberance at all. You know there's one in Ohio that's supposed to be I think the most quiet space in the United States. Really? Where they say that you can't stand to be in it for more than four minutes or something because you hear your blood pumping and it like throws off your, like people just can't stand it for, for very long. There's something about silence that's very foreign to a lot of us and it's why when we hop in our car, we flip on the radio and it's why we're always listening to something or having something on in the background. Yeah. And I think that there's some, physiolog- some physiology that is feeding into this, but I think there's also something spiritual about our our need to Agreed. constantly fill every space with some kind of noise.
0: Agreed. It says, interestingly, the word noise is either from the Latin word meaning disgust or nausea or another Latin word meaning hurt, damage, or injury. Yeah, Noise has been linked to high blood pressure, heart disease, uh, tinnitus, and loss of sleep. It says, we've all experienced the detrimental effects of noise pollution, uh, but now science has the proof not only that noise hurts, but that silence heals. And closing this up, I've told you this before, I, I so irregularly have silence in my life, like I'm alone a lot, but I always have something playing, Right, always have something. And so this is challenging. This is saying literally for your physical well-being, you need times of silence. And uh, that feels also very spiritual, right? We tell people uh, we call them quiet times from when we're young and have some time. Uh, So we would challenge you with that. Where do you have silence in your life? Uh, Where uh, And what effects does your lack of silence, do you think, have on your physical body and also your spiritual life? Well, coming up next i uh, going to talk about uh, an article about a lawsuit that a mom filed against a priest, and we're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Hope you're heading home on this Friday afternoon, and uh, looking forward to a great weekend. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show on Twitter. At Common Good Talk, find us online at 1160hope.com, and you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, review, and uh, we are grateful for those of you who are doing that. Well, before we talk about this story that I referenced a bit earlier, let me tell you about a new client of ours called MyPillow, because I have an exclusive offer for our listeners just in time for the holidays. If you buy a set of Giza cotton sheets from My Pillow, you'll get the second set free. Two for one. Not only that, but you'll get free shipping. If you add anything else to your order like My Pillows, mattress toppers, towels, anything, those items will ship free as well. And Common Good listeners can get deep discounts on all my pillow products, but you have to use the promo code W-Y-L-L. In fact, uh, my wife recently and, and I recently both got MyPillows and also some of the towels. They are wonderful. So all products have a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. So go to MyPillow.com, click on the Radio Listener Specials box, and get two sets of Giza cotton sheets for the price of one, plus free shipping on your entire order that's mypillow.com click the radio specials box and enter promo code w y l l or call 1-800-489-0201 that is mypillow.com promo code w y l l have you done them yet man have you gotten the my pillows yet no not yet maybe i'll get you one for christmas wow thanks man i feel like we should exchange gifts i think you're gonna get a my pillow I'm going to get a Thrive it subscription. I think that's payola. I don't think you're allowed to do that. <laughs> not if
1: we give to each other. I, I think
0: that makes it worse, actually. Okay. Well, then, no gift for you. No gift for you. So there was a uh, – I referenced it earlier. There was a disturbing story uh, that I found on ChristianPost.com uh, entitled this. And then maybe you could tell the story for us. Uh, Mom files lawsuit against priest for suggesting son who died by suicide might not go to heaven. What's the uh, details of the story?
1: Well, I was going to read those details, Brian, <laughs> like we talked about during the break, and you just—did I get you there? Just out, out out of the whole thing, right there. Uh, in a statement shortly after the backlash over Lacustas, which is the uh, the, the priest, priest. Uh, the Archdiocese of Detroit apologized and admitted that Lacuesta Le- failed to bring comfort to the family. It was also noted that the priest would be suspended from funeral duties and undergo additional training and review. On Thursday, the law firm of Charles E. Boyk said the family was taking things further and had filed a lawsuit against the Archdiocese of Detroit, Our Lady of Mount Carmel Parish, and Father LaQuesta for injuries. The Hollenbargers alleged were caused by the pastor's conduct during the Mason's, uh, during Mason's funeral. The mother of six who was seeking restitution of excess of $25,000 alleges that LaQuesta deliberately ignored the wishes of her and her husband regarding their son's funeral. She said that her family had not shared the cause of her son's death with the mm. pastor or the wider community which made the pastor's comments all the more shocking at our own child's funeral we were taken down yet again um, we were taken down yet again when it was a place that we were supposed to be lifted up Linda Hallenberger said uh, we ha- and we had no idea no indication that was going to happen. No parent, no sibling, no family member should ever, ever have to sit through what we sat through. Mm. Now, Andrea Young, an attorney at Charles Boyk Law, further noted that they believed the pastor planned to condemn s- suicide at the funeral. It was apparent to those in attendance that Father Laquesta had a message he wanted to relay. Young said that message was not previously disclosed to the Hollenbarger family and it did not conform to a uh, homily that Father Laquesta previously agreed to deliver. At a time of tragedy, the Hollenbarger family turned to their church for peace and comfort. But instead, Father La Cuesta, uh his actions caused them irreparable harm and pain. So I'm yeah, I don't. It's a hard story. It's a really hard story, and I'm curious why why you uh, picked it. Uh, a just because it was in the
0: news, but uh, B, um, I think as a pastor, and we're both pastors who've done funerals. Some, you know, I think you've even referenced. I think you've said you've done a funeral or multiple funerals for suicide victims. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel such a burden when I get up Uh, a burden or a pressure or a, uh, yeah, burden is probably the right word uh, to no matter what, be comforting, (laughs) be comforting to the family. And I, I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, even so you said you've dealt with with suicide victims in a funeral. Like, how did you approach that? Was it any different? Like, I can't imagine going in and going, I'm going to condemn this in this boy's funeral. Like when I read this, the first reason I put on this because I found it so unbelievable, Yeah, like somewhat shocking. And I'm glad that he got suspended and is going to get in trouble for this, um, albeit like the bad theology, in my opinion of it. Uh, just the time and the place. How is it that you, in your past, have approached a funeral, whether it be uh, believer, non-believer, uh, tragedy? Well, there's always a tragedy—a sudden death versus you know a sickness. Like, how do you go
1: into um, officiating a funeral? I mean, it's different with every person, every family, and yeah. I think remembering that—that that every every situation is unique, every family grieves differently. You know, I'll, I'll often. Talk about the three reasons that we gather are to grieve to comfort, but also to celebrate mm. um, and I think those can apply you know in any context. I would love to sit this priest down and just try to get into his head like well, what were you what were you thinking yeah. even why now even if that is your deep conviction was for him like this is no this is a chance for me to really proclaim an important truth to these people right now I think that's um I don't know that, that to me, maybe he's, maybe he's just inexperienced, but my, I mean, my very first funeral was a suicide. So I was, I was, uh, your first funeral was mm, a suicide. Oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah. I was, I was like 23 years that old. That is unreal. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't really know at all what I was doing. I felt really underprepared. I, I remember when I found out, you know, they called me over to the house and I just canceled all of my meetings for the next two days and just grieved with the family. Mm-hmm. It's like all I knew to do. I just, yeah. I just was there with them from sunup to sundown. Just was you the youth pastor at the time? Yeah, I was a youth student? pastor. It was the father of one of our students. So it was like a very, oh, yeah, oh my gosh. yeah, it was a very, very uh, intense, very difficult, very, I mean, I remember feeling at a very visceral level, like the pain of this community, um, trying to wrap their brain around it. It was really unexpected, you know, as suicides often are. Um, and, as a result of that, it, I mean, it is, it it is it's been a relationship that has main, maintained, you mm. know, 13 years later. I think not that this is, this is necessarily something that you could, something that is achievable in every circumstance. Absolutely. But I think, I think showing them that I was just there to be with them, to grieve with them, yep. showed a level of, um, of intent. Yeah I'm, not, yeah. I'm not here just to try to like preach at you or yep. to get you to attend our church or whatever, but just to grieve with them for a little bit. And yep. that, you know ultimately led to a lot of questions, not over the course just of that week, but over the, over years. And I've done a number of their weddings now as a result, you know, you had this, you know, this really beautiful community that kind of rallied around the family. And um, yeah, it's a really, really tough thing though. It's a really hard season for any family, obviously. And I, I think pastors would do well to really, really think through what it's like, Uh, on the receiving end as best they can and to to be Jesus to them in the midst of unthinkable circumstances.
0: Let me ask you a hard question then. Theologically, if they said to you, maybe they did say to you, hey, I've heard people say before that suicide, you don't go to heaven. Yeah. I think it's terrible theology, but how would you – because there might be people out there right now going, yeah, that's kind of what I grew up believing or that's – that's what I fear for my loved one or what, how how would you answer, how would you kind of pop that balloon it just, or answer it just that question? Puts,
1: it puts way too much power in the hands of humans. Yes. If we believe that we're saved by grace by the finished work of Jesus' life, death, resurrection mm-hmm. to say like, except unless of course yeah, you on this side of eternity do this thing then Jesus' redemption is completely undone. I, I To me, it it that theology has such a weak view of the resurrection, uh, such that's a right. flat view of salvation justification uh, and i think it i think it gives us far too much uh power as mm-hmm. humans to say yeah i mean that uh, this is someone who uh has surrendered his life to jesus and entrusted jesus uh with yeah. all of who he was and oh but then he this is what he chose to do so i guess jesus couldn't save him yep. or whatever that to me is theologically problematic on, on a lot of different levels
0: yep. yep and i think the takeaway for me the other takeaway is uh as Christ followers, whether you're a pastor or just somebody comforting people, like the funeral is a time to be comforting and, <laughs> uh, and not going with an agenda. And uh, it is, uh, they are hard things to do, but I've, we've talked about this before. I find funerals to be also deeply holy and privileges to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so praying for this family and also uh, hopefully we can learn a lesson from a hard story about, you know, what's it look like to be compassionate? in people's hardest times well coming up next uh at religion news uh talking about uh churches using their land for affordable housing a really interesting story coming up next on the common good am 1160 hope for your life welcome back to the common good am 1160 hope for your life with ian Simkins. my name is brian from glad to have you with us today You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. There you'll find anything that we've been talking about today, whether it be an article, uh, other things that we'd love for you to weigh in on. Also, uh, especially Ian tends to post stuff on there uh, during the week that you won't even hear on the show. Mm -hmm. Sometimes funny things, sometimes (laughs) deeper things. Uh, Yeah, and sometimes at very weird times of the night.
1: (laughs) Mm. I don't think those are me. Yeah. Weird times of the night. Like, I Sometimes I'll see certain things. I'm like,
0: oh, you're up with your kid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm up. I was like, might as well post to the Facebook Might page.
0: as well go with it right now. Uh, so we'd love to have you on Facebook with us or on Twitter at Common Good Talk. You can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review. Going to jump into the story at Religion News. Uh, about some things that faith congregations in California are doing to respond to the state's housing crisis. But before we do that, you've got something for us.
1: I do have something for all of us. Right? All of us. So uh, we had Go Promoters on the show, uh, I think it was last week, and they're starting this thing. They've already started this thing called Go Underground. So Go Promoters is a uh, Chicagoland Christian music promoter, and you know many of these shows, I mean, it's – They've had, you know, for King Country and Francesca Battistelli and big, massive shows, and they're often in schools and churches, but they really have a hard-to-reach people who maybe would never show up to, like, a CCM Christian artist yeah. at, a, at a church. So um, Christian Metal Band Disciple is coming to Q Bar in Glendale Heights on December 6th on their Love Letter Shot Tour. They'll be sharing their faith throughout the concert, and you can have an opportunity to talk about your faith and your hope in Jesus afterwards. AM 1160 and Go Underground is offering a special challenge for AM 1160 listeners to invite a friend to come with you for free. Visit 1160hope.com slash disciple and receive one free ticket for your friend. Tickets are available starting at $10 at itickets.com. So I would incha- – I mean I challenge anyone that's listening thinking, yeah, I-, I am one of those people. I have a neighbor, yeah. a friend, a cousin, a coworker, whatever that – um, would never maybe show up to a church, but they'd show up to see a metal band. Yep. Go get your free ticket, buy your ticket, visit 1160hope.com slash disciple and come on out on December 6th at Q Bar in Glendale Heights. And what I love about that is, you know,
0: I think sometimes when we've been around the church while we think, well, the only way to reach my friend is to bring him to church. And the only yeah, way right. to reach my neighbor is to evangelize them with the four spiritual laws over the back fence. Go for it if that's what's going to work. But sure. like, this is like, okay, Let's uh, let's go about this another way. It's a cool thing, a yeah. really cool thing. Agreed. And uh, you said this is a band that you enjoy that I've never heard of. They're, so that's the really, really legitimately that's good. An amazing band. That's awesome. Well, uh, reference a story at Religion News. Uh, it's called "Yes in God's Backyard" to use church land for affordable housing. Let me read some of the beginning of this. Faith congregations across California are responding to the state's housing crisis by sharing their parking lots with people living in their cars, providing mobile showers for the homeless, and joining their neighbors in calling for rent control in their communities. But another form of housing advocacy has taken place among spaces of faith. A number of churches are exploring ways to build affordable housing on their land. It's what pastors and other leaders are referring to as Yigby or yes in God's backyard. Hmm. The acronym is playing off of the term NIMBY short for not in my backyard, hmm. a term often used to describe community pushback against affordable housing or other similar projects. Jesus very clearly tells us to keep our eyes open to those who are in need, said Claremont Lutheran church pastor, uh, Jonathan Doolittle. California is home to the 10 least affordable major markets In the nation and is near the top in cost burdened households, Hmm. second among homeowners and fourth among renters. According to a January 2019 report, the median home price in California is five hundred and forty nine thousand dollars and the median rent is two thousand eight hundred dollars a month. About four years ago, Claremont Lutheran Church members in San Diego decided they needed to go to do something about the housing crisis. And so they became part of an interfaith shelter network in which congregations open their spaces for a certain length of time to house families in crisis. During this time, churches host families for two weeks while they get back on their feet. Hmm. The families rotate to other churches in the network. But once the cycle runs out, they have nowhere to go. And the story goes on to say that now the next step in this is that churches are literally taking parts of their land, part of their big um, uh, parking lot or maybe land that they have. And they're literally building affordable housing projects on the church property. Uh, And so when I read this, there were a couple major things that stood out for me. First, uh, before getting to what they're actually doing it's yet another cool story of churches from different backgrounds coming together to bless the community. We just talked about this a day or two ago, about the the need for churches to work together. And here in California, where there's a legitimate crisis,
1: you've got these churches in this area doing this together. I find that really inspiring again. I Honestly, not only do I think it's inspiring, I think... Um if the church wants to survive in the next 15, mm. 20, 25 years, it's going to have to start thinking differently about its assets. I th- its I think, assets, yeah. I, I think seeing yeah. buildings and property and resources that are available to churches, you know, and often in some cases uniquely to churches, I think I – we're always going to see new iterations of this. You know, I think um, probably 15, 20 years ago, the cafe in the church was like a really groundbreaking idea. Yep. It's this third space. I think we're going to see more and more things like this. I think thinking about – I mean, I even think about uh, like my friend Hugh Halter who's in uh, yeah. Alton, Illinois. He opened up a coffee shop venue space that is also a church but almost not even primarily a church. Yeah, they yeah. really wanted to create a, a space for artists, create a space for the city to meet and gather. They're thinking through kind of a cultural hermeneutic. Like what is, what is the biggest need facing yeah. our city or our neighborhood right in front of us? And it feels like – this church is asking the same questions like, okay, these are needs right here. And why not be a part of the solution? I think it's great. And they're running into some problems uh, with
0: zoning and some uh-huh, other stuff, but course. they're really
1: making they're
0: making strides to get by those. Uh, and he said, sorry about that. It said, uh, one of the pastors said, this is just one part of how we live out our faith. We hope to be a model for other faith communities who might see, that's exactly what you said, who might see their property in a different way hmm. uh this same reverend said what if we became a part of the solution to this problem as well and it's interesting like they started by just kind of feeding the homeless then housing the homeless for a little while and then going can we be part of the solution uh to actually uh, get them off the streets for good and man this is what becomes so hard as a pastor because We all want to do things like this, but how is it that we as churches can think creatively and tackle the problems? How do you think – like how does that work for you or maybe your guys' church? Like is it we see a problem and we brainstorm what can we do or it's kind kind of bubbles up from the passions of people? How do people out there even start thinking in these ways, do you think?
1: Uh, There's a couple of things I would say. I think there are principles that apply corporately that are more obvious to us individually, Mm -hmm. so – When I talk to anyone who I think is doing good creative work, they always talk about space and margin to even brainstorm in the first place. So if you're, you know, if you're running ragged from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. every single day, Mm -hmm. you're probably not going to have a great set of lenses to really observe and or think creatively about solutions. So Mm -hmm. that's a big part of it, creating actual intentional space to see the world, to see the problems kind of in your world and to creatively brainstorm solutions. The second thing that I think community does really well is – is making sure it's kind of the Jim Collins, right? Having the right people on the right seat on the right Mm -hmm. bus. So, you know, for us, we have community 412, which oversees like our compassion and justice efforts. So I'll get emails quite frequently. Like "Hey, I'm interested in exploring this or talking about that. We have a whole team dedicated to that. And I know not, you know, every church um, can necessarily manage that, but even at Poplar Creek, you know, we had created an organizational pie chart and there was a particular wedge that was overseeing, those types of efforts mm. and had the support of we called the ministry directors and they had elders that were sort of their go-to support person yeah. but when those emails or notes or suggestions would come through we at least had a point of contact for someone who like understands what's kind of in our power You know, in terms of money. Yeah. And then also, what are things we've tried in the past or what are the other, you know, someone that's just sort of living in that space, uh, I think is really important. That's a good point. I think the
0: whole thing about margin is really good. Like, do we even have the space in our churches and in our lives to be creative to even then even have those conversations? Because I do think as churches, Uh, And as just Christ followers, we want to make a difference in our community. Like they said here in this article, we want to be part of the solution. Uh, The question is, how do we do that? And I would say also, like you said, see what's bubbling up within Mm -hmm. your congregation. See what's going on in your specific community uh, and kind of run down those trails. So really inspiring article. Take a look at it. Some of these churches kind of making a difference out in California in the midst of the housing crisis well coming up next we're going to end the show the way we end every show with some interweb insanity that is next up here on the common good am 1160 hope for your life here's some weird stuff we found on the internet here's some more weird stuff we found on the web that music can only mean one thing. It is the end of the show. Interweb Insanity, where we read the articles written by, or not written by, found by our producers. It would be fun if they were written that by. That be awesome. What if we find that out later? Like, hey, by the way, we made all those up then. Uh, <laughs> hey, but before we get into Interweb Insanity, let me tell you about the Chicago Leadership Prayer Breakfast. Did you know since 1964, the Chicago Leadership Prayer Breakfast has brought together leaders of all faith from the business, government, and nonprofit worlds. So you could join over 600 Chicago leaders in prayer with AM 1160 uh, breakfast chairs, Marty Ozinga and his brother, Paul Ozinga, and hear from keynote speaker Dr. Dr. Nicholas Pierce, associate pastor at Apostolic Faith Church at the Chicago Hilton on December 6th at 730 a.m. Tickets for the 2019 Chicago Leadership Prayer Breakfast uh, by the Chicago Sunday Evening Club are $100 or $1,000 for a table. And they're available at Eventbrite or at CSEC.org. That's C-S-E-C, uh, dot org. And as we jump into these kickers, we always reference Keith Conrad. We forgot to mention, uh, congratulations, Keith Conrad and uh, Misty Callahan. Callahan, right? Mm-hmm. For their engagement. Uh, that is an inner office engagement here at Salem. And we are very <laughs> excited. Very excited. Way to go, Keith. <laughs> an inner office engagement. <laughs> sounds like fisticuffs in the does, office. It does.
1: <laughs> Between departments.
0: We are happy for you guys. Way to go, Keith. That's not even going to be found in Kickers. What would the? if there was a sound effect for it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> That'd be funny. All right, man. Why don't you go first? first why one. don't I go first? There Wisconsin. Go. Man arrested on suspicion of OWI, fake plates made from beer case. Wow. The, Chipp- the Chippewa Falls Police Department made a fourth offense drunken driving arrest Monday and found fake plates on the suspect's vehicle. According to Chippewa Falls PD Facebook post. Why do they put it on Facebook? <laughs> Officer Scott. <laughs> showing wetter. Showing wetter. <laughs> pulled over the driver Monday and noticed the registration plates didn't match the vehicle. Maybe they are illegal in the land of sky blue waters. Just not here in Chippewa Falls. Have you been drinking? I'm not drunk. <laughs> that one's showing up a lot. That was that felt very Wisconsin-y
0: to you. That's, That's true. true. Next one. Venezuela. Uh, America's uh, nothing. Woman caught stealing eight pairs of jeans by wearing them all at once. Oh, that's impressive. A woman has allegedly been caught stealing multiple pairs of jeans from a clothing store. She was filmed removing her loot one layer at a time after putting them all on at the same time to try and hoodwink the security guards. Who writes the- this? <laughs> I love hoodwink. Good use of hoodwink. The unnamed woman stands in a bathroom as she takes off pair after pair after pair until she gets down uh, to her knickers. As she removes a clothes, a man filming can be heard counting them as she leaves them around her ankles. In total, she had eight pairs of jeans on. It is believed that the woman was filmed in a bathroom in Venezuela, although the exact location is
1: not known. Could I be wearing any more clothes? Ah, Britain hasn't been on in a long time. Yeah, that's true. That's That's a good one. All right, California. Child shatters glass at California's zoo bear exhibit After hitting it with a rock Causing $67,000 in damages Bad idea What kind of glass is that? <laughs> Visitors in the Oakland Zoo in California Might be hesitant to visit the grizzly bears Because of the visibly cracked glass at the exhibit but officials said Tuesday that the animals aren't at risk of getting out. Mm. Don't they have <laughs> uh, to say that? Yeah, right, of course. <laughs> Can you imagine the press release? Like They are definitely <laughs> getting out. out. for a bear <laughs> over by the dipping Ducks. Come on out for Ice Cream Sunday. Uh, Oakland Zoo spokeswoman Erin Harrison confirmed on Tuesday that the glass was shattered, shockingly, after a child repeatedly hit it with a rock. Who's watching this child? Or how strong is this child? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The child is now a (laughs) bodybuilder. While the image of an 8-foot, 900-pound bear behind a broken glass might stop some people from visiting the exhibit, Harrison said it was only the laminate layer that was shattered. Sure. She says the bulletproof strength glass at the enclosure where four grizzly bears live is made of six separate panes, each of which is one inch thick. I tried
0: to get an interview with him, but they said, nope, you can't do that. He's a live bear. He will literally
1: rip your face off. (laughs) Is that Anchorman? Oh, next one's out of Alaska.
0: I think that was. Cruise ship leaves couple behind in Alaska after a woman gets sick. Oh, no. A Toronto couple said they had to take four connecting flights back home after their cruise ship decided to leave an Alaskan port without them on board. Abdul Ghaffur and Catherine Sue decided to take an Alaskan cruise to celebrate their wedding anniversary. But four days into the trip, Uh, Sue got sick and was treated by medical staff on board the ship. They gave her oxygen and put an IV in her hand and said they would give her something to reduce her fever. Sue was kept overnight for observation in the ship's medical area. And the next day, the ship's doctor felt she should go to a hospital at the next port in Juneau. I asked the doctor, can I stay on the ship? And they said, no, to be safe, we should send you to the hospital. The couple said that once they got off the ship, they were taken to Bartlett Regional Hospital, where tests were done. Sue said she started to feel better, and when the pair tried to go back on the ship, they were told they would not be allowed. They ended up needing to take connecting flights that cost them more, to, more than $3,000 to get back to Toronto. I'll
1: never let go. I promise. <laughs> I think anybody was like, do you know where they went? Anyone? Do you know know know. where they went? Do you think she's going to sue them? Oh, Oh, boy. All right. We should just end this. Last one for you. England. Robbery suspect apparently tried to use a pair of glasses to trick police. You have to see this picture. This picture is really uncomfortable. A robbery suspect in England thought he could evade authorities with a new look, a pair of glasses. I mean, it worked for Clark Kent, right? Yeah. David Springthorpe, 30, was wanted for allegedly shoplifting and violating a court order when he recently came into contact with a police officer in South Normanton. A short chase ensued, and he was detained. Authorities said Springthorpe, a white man with blue eyes, brown hair, wide ears, and a notable neck tattoo, tried to disguise himself by wearing a pair of black rimmed glasses. That, the Alfreton police wrote on Facebook Tuesday, was not quite cunning enough to outsmart the team. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. He, 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 <laughs> nice, you you I kinda, a two days, two days in a row I've called that. That was well done, well
0: Thanks. done. Hey, it's been a good day. We hope you have a great weekend, and join us again on Monday from 4 to 6. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160,
1: hope for your life.